I served in Vietnam. I served in Iraq. No matter where you served or when, VA has benefits for veterans of every generation. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. I'm Timothy Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. Today is January 25th. It is a Wednesday. It is not the normal podcast release date, but today I have a another special episode, another in-between-isode, if you will. Today is the 72nd anniversary of the end of the Battle of the Bulge, and to commemorate that very historic battle between the Germans and the Allies, uh, I wanted to share a conversation that we had with a army veteran, served in the Battle of the Bulge, and went on to serve also in Vietnam and Korea. Uh, his name is Harry Miller. We actually met him down at the World War II Memorial here in D.C., uh, and he welcomed us into his home and told us all about his experience in the military at the Battle of the Bulge, and then he also adds a little bit uh, of his service following that battle uh, in, in the rest of his service uh, in World War II. If you like listening to old war stories and, and veterans just recounting their service, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, here is Harry Miller talking about his service in the Battle of the Bulge. I guess I was different because uh, I remember that the Canadian Army had landed at uh, oh a town in France, which escapes me right now. But anyway, they landed to to test to see how the Germans would react to a landing. It was a small landing, but it consisted of a Canadian division and a few Americans that were training as uh, uh, rangers. So anyway. They were wiped out practically to a man or captured. And that, for some reason, that hit me awful hard. Now, I had nothing to do with Canada. I'd never been to Canada at that time. But I was so wrapped up in World War II because I'd read everything there was about it at the time. And I guess my feelings were hurt. So I, I, I thought, well, I'll go to Canada, see if I can get in the Army. Well, anyway, just before that, uh, I was in high school and I wasn't the best student in the world, but I was always interested in history, still am. And uh, I just had a chance, I thought I would see if I could go in. And I joined what they called at the time uh, Enlisted Reserve Corps, which they don't have anymore. But uh, it was an idea to get kids interested in the Army because the Navy and the Marines had their own reserve units that, that they got people interested in that particular branch. So I joined the Enlisted Reserve Corps because I always wanted to be in the Army. Even when I was a kid, I wanted to be in the Army. I wanted to be a first sergeant. And uh, so anyway, I, I joined, the, I, I signed up for the Enlisted Reserve Corps and I put in for active duty and I got it. Uh, of course, I had to lie about my age, but I got it. And I guess they were so anxious to get people, they didn't check it apparently. or they looked over it. So anyway, I went in, uh, took my training at, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I was not political at all. In fact, I found out later on that my dad was very, very much for Roosevelt and 
I was not. <laughs> I went in, went to Fort Knox, Kentucky, took tank training, and uh, we had to be able to operate in all positions on the tank, five people, driver, bow gunner, loader, uh, gunner, and tank commander. So we, I took the training, and right after the training was over, why they sent me overseas to, uh, I landed up in, in Belgium, and I was with my unit, 740th Tank Battalion. They were billeted in the town of Neufchateau, which is about uh, 15 miles from Liège, and uh, went in there, and most of the guys that were in that outfit were from Texas and Oklahoma. And uh, if you've never been to Texas and Oklahoma, there's a very strong rivalry between the two, and it still is. And it got so it was really something. Uh, you'd be talking to somebody, and they'll say, well, I'm from Oklahoma. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Texas. Oh, well, Texas is no good. Well, neither is Oklahoma. Oh, well, and then back and forth. Pretty soon there's a fist fight. So I had to back off from that because not being from either Texas or Oklahoma, I wanted to stay out of it. Plus being young, I didn't want to get caught. So I played it low keyed and stayed, kept my nose clean, stayed out of trouble and stayed out of the way of the officers because they were always trouble. And uh, so I was assigned to the assault gun platoon. The assault gun platoon was uh, six tanks, six Sherman tanks with a 105 millimeter gun on them. The regular Sherman tanks had either a 75 or a 76 millimeter gun. And so the purpose of, uh, of the uh, assault gun was to offer artillery support for a tank attack. And that's what we did. And uh, so anyway, uh, everything was going fine until the uh, 16th of December, 1944, and uh, the Germans broke through. And at first, nobody was too concerned about it, except for the fact that we had only green divisions in the Ardennes at that time. And uh, so they kept pressing further and further. Well, finally, the First Army headquarters told us to uh, go down to this uh, ordnance depot and take anything we want, anything we wanted, I should say. And uh, so we got down there thinking, well, good, we'll be able to get some tanks because we didn't have any tanks. They had taken away from us in England saying that we would get them when we got to France. Well, they, they didn't get them, and they didn't get them when we got up into Belgium. So when, when the Germans broke loose, well, all of a sudden they told us to go get some tanks. So we went to this ordnance depot, and uh, the only thing that was there was old shot-up tanks and ones with holes in them and worn out, engines messed up, and they didn't have any tools with them, didn't have any rammer staffs for the guns, no radios, all the radios had been pulled out. So fortunately, the battalion had been trained with hand signals. They had trained in the desert, uh, the Arizona desert, before, before they went overseas. And so they had, had used these hand signals because they knew that when they got in the desert, they probably wouldn't be able to use the radios that we had. So the hand signals really helped them. So anyway, the night that they, everybody went down to, to help, we had to uh, take good parts off of one tank and put it on another. We finally got three tanks and a tank destroyer uh, that would operate and would run and had a gun 
and it would, they would flower. So we got those and they gave them to our C company. And they told them to go down to the um, railroad station at uh, this town of um, uh, Stumont, Stumont, Belgium. And to, to approach this train station, it sat here and there was a road that came around on a curve and right down to the train station. Well, we met them, the C, RC company met them at this curve and the first tank, first American tank, saw the first German tank and they fired at them and around, of course the guns had, had not been checked to see how accurate they were, but they fired and the round bounced and went into the German tank and knocked it out. Fortunate, it was just, just a, a lucky shot. Knocked out the first tank. Well, he reloaded, the American tank reloaded and round got stuck, so he motioned for the next tank to come around. When he came around the curve, he caught the second, second tank and he fired on it and knocked it out. Same thing happened on the next round, uh, the next tank coming up on both sides. The third tank was a tank destroyer, which had a 90 millimeter gun on it rather than a 75 or a 76. So he hit this German tank and knocked it out. Well, this was the first SS Panzer Division, which was Hitler's old bodyguard. And uh, they were a tough bunch of so-and-sos. And they were treated that way for the rest of the war, by the way, by us. Anyway, they turned around and left. Well, they went down to the town of Leglise, which is another town that we had a problem with. Meanwhile, we got some tanks, we got our equipment, and our battalion commander had set up a command post in a uh, big chateau at the town of Stumont. And uh, he got our six uh, assault gun tanks lined up next to a, to a, like a porch that we had in the back of the uh, uh, chateau. And he was directing fire on the town of Leglise. At one point, he even found a lieutenant that was trying to retreat with a 105 howitzer, a long tom howitzer. So he made that guy and his crew come around and set up next to us. And so we were firing 75 rounds, 105 rounds and, uh, and uh, 105 long tom rounds into the town of Leglise. Well, we destroyed the town. and. Uh, I have photos of that at home, but uh, not with me. But we completely destroyed the town. We ran the first SS Panzer Division out of there. And uh, meanwhile, the Germans tried to get back into the town of Stumont, and uh, there was a uh, hospital building there. And it was being overrun by the Germans. They had some uh, 30th, 30th Infantry Division troops had some of their people on the first floor. And the German tank was sitting at the one end of the building. It was a long, narrow building. The German tank was sitting at the far end, firing through the window, right down the hallway, and knocking out anything he could get. Well, the GIs were caught in there. They were running out of ammunition, and they had to just lay down and, and hope that they didn't get hit. So our unit, Again, C Company, they had to get up this hill to get to this sanat it was sanatorium, they called it, St. Edward Sanatorium. And uh, couldn't get up there because it was so muddy. So that night, they laid uh, a corduroy road up that hill when the Germans couldn't see them. 
and the company commander got a silver star for that. But anyway, we got up and knocked out that German tank and uh, ran the rest of the Germans out of there and went down in the basement and there was a Catholic priest down there, Belgian, with about 50 little Belgian kids, probably six, seven years old. And these kids were all beside themselves. You know, they're scared to half to death. And this priest had been trying to keep them quiet and everything. So we got these kids out of there and they were just overwhelmed. They were so thankful for, to get out of there. Well, anyway, that was about the rest of that part of it until uh, the bulge ended. And that, oh, by the way, we, we, we started out with the 30th Infantry Division for five days and then the 82nd Airborne came up. And if you know anything about the history of it, why the 82nd and the 101st came up from France. The 101st was sent off to Bastogne and the 82nd was sent up to the North Shoulder where we were. So since they didn't have tanks, why they gave us to them. And uh, we would supply one, one tank, or one, one tank platoon actually for each regiment. And uh, they would use us as they wanted to. Well, 82nd and, and our outfit had one heck of a fight around through that northern sh uh, shoulder of the balls. Well, they finally got it, that finished and, and then we started heading east to the Siegfried line. Balls ended on the 25th of January, 45. And so heading toward the Siegfried line, we knew it was gonna be another tough battle because uh, of course everybody was short of people by that time and, and equipment. So we finally got, uh, more people, more vehicles, and the Siegfried line came up, and all that was, of course, was these dragon teeth sticking up out of the ground that the Germans thought was going to stop a tank. Well, it would have in the 1930s when tanks were not capable of going doing much, but behind the line, behind the Siegfried line, and part of it were these bunkers, and some of the bunkers, the walls were easily as, as thick as this half of this room. Eight, 10 feet, 12 feet was nothing. And it would be on the sides and on the top. It'd have maybe a, a hole for ventilation on the top. And so the infantry had to try to take these things and to, before they could do that, they had to get through these uh, dragon teeth. So we found out all they had to do is take a, a tank with a bulldozer on it, push dirt up on these, on these dragon teeth, as they called them, and the tank could just go right on over. And that, that helped the infantry because they, they couldn't get any artillery in there, and the tanks, of course, could supply that for them. And some of the infantrymen, of course, would get up on top of them eventually, and uh, they could throw a hand grenade in, into the ventilator shaft, and many times that would knock them out, but uh, sometimes it didn't. You had to get around in back of the, of the bunkers and with hand grenades or or uh, shape charges, whatever, you could blow a door in, and the doors were real thick metal. So anyway, these, these bunkers were lined up so that each one could protect the other one. Uh, the field of fire, uh, each, each bunker could protect the other, uh, another bunker. So that lasted for about, oh, two, three, five miles, something like that, into Germany. We got that all taken care of, and then we went into the uh, 8th Infantry Division. We were still with the 82nd through the Siegfried Line. Then we went with the 8th Infantry Division and to the town of Durham. That's D-U-R-E-N with a umlaut, uh, dots over the U. And it's right on the Ruhr River, 
R-O-E-R river, not the R-U-H-R. Uh, and the Germans had, had uh, destroyed a, a dam down the river and it caused all this water to flood through there on the floodplain. And so we had to sit there for two weeks and wait for the water to go down before we could cross. Nobody could cross, even the infantry couldn't get across because they couldn't get a bridge. And so what we did, we just lined up the tanks and we just fired into town. We just knocked out anything and everything that was there. And uh, by the time the water went down, the Germans had pretty much taken off because they knew we were coming across at that time. Yeah, and, and well, this, this of course was the end of January, 1st of February, so it was still plenty cold. Yeah, it was the coldest winter they had had in, in recorded history, they said. So anyway, the funny thing, when we got across into Duren, there was a statue there, and I don't know whether it was a German king or, or what it was, or a general or something. But anyway, he had his hand, arm out like that with his finger, and he was pointing to the east. Well, from all this artillery fire, this, this monument had actually turned around, and then he was pointing west. And I got tickled because all these GIs going by there with weapons, and not a one of them that I know of ever shot that finger off of that guy's hand because they loved to do that. Whenever they saw anything sticking out like that, they'd want to shoot it, and, and I guess somebody probably finally got it. But the town of Duran is, after you get off the flood, flood plain, it's just a hill that goes up, and uh, that's where the Cologne Plain starts. And the plain in the Cologne is just a flat area with a lot of small towns. And we went through there with the 8th Infantry Division and uh, we helped take Cologne. And our, my unit was with the 8th Division. We took the south end of, of uh, Cologne. As soon as Cologne was cleared, while they put our uh, track vehicles on flat cars, trained flat cars, and took us down to the 7th Army area, we were with the 1st Army all this other time. We went down to the 7th Army area and helped the, uh, we were going to help the 70th Infantry Division across the Siegfried Line, which we didn't look forward to. But unfortunately, they had crossed already, so they said, well, go down to the 63rd, which was the next one south. So we took the 63rd through the Siegfried Line again, uh, again through the Siegfried Line, we had to go. And uh, then we helped them take uh, the town of Hamburg, which it's H-O-M-B-U-R-G, not H-A-M. And uh, after that, they put us back on flat cars, and took us up to, back up the First Army area. The uh, wheeled vehicles drove up, but the tra track vehicles went up on the flat cars. So we got up to Bonn, Bonn, Germany, and uh, crossed the Rhine River. And uh, after we got across the Rhine, we turned north, went up to just across the river from Cologne. If you're familiar with that area at all, you, across the river you get a beautiful view of the dome there, or the cathedral. And uh, some of the people got pictures of it. I never did that, at that time. But anyway, uh, we, we met the, let's see, we're back up with the 8th Infantry Division again. And we did a big circle, which was called the uh, Ruhr Pocket. It was called a, a Ruhr Pocket Battle. And what, what happened was the American troops encircled a full German army. And we ended up in Dusseldorf. 
and I don't know how many thousand German prisoners we captured into going in that in that uh, pocket, but there was just thousands of it. One of the guys that was captured was this General Model, who uh, was rather famous German metal. In fact, he was one of Hitler's favorites, and he he uh, was so embarrassed that he went into woods somewhere and killed himself, and they buried him. But anyway, uh, we were sat at Dusseldorf for about two weeks and uh, cleaned up our vehicles and cleaned ourselves up for the first time in about a month. And uh, then we got word to go up to the Blaquita River, or uh, the town of Blaquita River, on the river of Elbe River. And uh, we had to sit up there and wait till they build a bridge for us to get our, our vehicles across. And uh, this famous general, whose name I can never remember. Anyway, he was commanded the 18th Airborne Corps at the time, and then later on he was in Korea. But anyway, uh, he was after him to get this bridge built. Well, meanwhile, we were firing across the river, and they were firing at, uh, at us, at probably one of the worst artillery barrages that had happened to us. But none of our people were killed, fortunately, at that point. But anyway, we finally got that bridge built, and we went across, and then we were with the 82nd going across, and part of the 8th. And after we got across, while well, we turned north toward the Baltic, and we dropped off the 82nd at, at a point called Ludwigslust, which was a location of a, of a concentration camp. And it was quite a bad one. But anyway, uh, we continued on north with the 8th Infantry Division, and we got up to the town of uh, Schwerin. This was in May, finally in May, the last days of May, because uh, we were there in, in Schwerin when the war ended. We had joined the British Army up there, the British Second Army. And uh, it, I didn't know this at the time, but I found out the reason they sent us up there because the British were coming across, straight across, and they came, uh, they brought us up to help them. And I couldn't figure out why at that point in time, because nobody really needed a whole lot of help. The Germans were pretty well defeated, and most of them were stuck on the, on the east side of the Elbe River. So anyway, I found out after many, many years that the reason they sent us up there was because they thought that the Russians were going to try to get in to take Denmark. That was the reason the British had rushed over there, and we had rushed up there to, to stop them. Had the Russians taken Denmark, it would have just been a matter of days, and they had Norway and Sweden as well. And uh, one of our guys, one or two of them, got in a rowboat that they found, and they went over and uh, talked to some Russians, and they got a hold of a German that uh, wanted to come, and naturally all the Germans wanted to come over onto the, our side because they didn't want to deal with the Russians. But anyway, they found this German man and he asked him if they would take him back on our side and they took him. They weren't supposed to, but they did. And uh, this German was so thankful, you know, I, apparently he was from on the, our side, so he went home. But anyway, the war ended there and we had a ceremony and the commanding general of the 8th Infantry Division had a nice time talking to us and gave us some nice uh, recommendations. General Gavin, who commanded the 82nd Airborne, wrote us a letter after the war and thanked us. They said that uh, we were the best tank battalion they ever worked with and they would be proud to have us wear their, their shoulder patch at any time. 
So most of the guys wore it on the right sleeve and, and our tank battalion patch on the left. I, I think like just about everybody I could think of, they were, they were trying to stay alive. Yeah, that was the most important thing in the world, trying to find something to eat and trying to stay alive because everybody was always hungry. I think we, we would have eaten anything we could have found. And Europeans, the same thing. I mean, they were just as probably even hungrier than we were, but everybody was always hungry. Now, on the tanks, we could carry, we, we, we put uh, racks on the back of our of the uh, turret, and we would put our musette bags in there, and anything we didn't want to carry, we'd put it on that rack. We even put our rations there, and we had what they called 10-in-1 rations at that time, which was the best ration that they had. And a 10-in-1 would break down to a 5-in-1, which was ideal for a tank crew because it was enough food for five men for one meal. Well, unfortunately, we'd put those on that rack on the turret, and then we'd carry infantrymen from one point to another, you know, until they had to jump off, and so-and-sos would steal our food. Uh, what they, we would do the same thing to them if we had the chance and if they'd had anything to eat. But every, everybody was trying to find something to eat at the time. And then you wound up in the Asian theater war, too. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I stayed over there until 48 uh, after, after the, the surrender was signed. Why We had to go to our American zone, and the British had to go to theirs, of course, and the Russians stay in theirs. So we went down to the castle area just north of Frankfurt and ended up in the town of Limburg on the Lahn River, a real nice old town. And uh, we stayed there until we deactivated in uh, June 23rd, 46. And then we dispersed us all over the place. I went to the 9th Infantry Division down at Bad, Bad Tolst, Germany, all the way down south. That's where uh, Patton was when he was relieved of his command and turned it over to General Truscott. And that, that, was, that was a premier spot down there. That, we were in a concern there that uh, during the war had been the SS officer school, and that was, that was first class. I mean, that was like going to the best hotel in town. They had real nice quarters. Everything was perfect for them. So I stayed there, and... Uh, one funny thing that happened there was they, they told us we had to go find uh, uh, Bormann, who was Hitler's adjutant, you know. And we said, well, sure, fine. We're, if you have to go up in the Bavarian Alps to find him, they thought he was up there. I said, what's he look like? Well, we don't know. We, we don't have any pictures of him. Well, how are we supposed to know who Bormann is? Well, you figure it out. Make work thing. So they sent us up. We're going through the Alps. and. Stopping every German we find, and are, are you are you Bormann? Of course, oh no, not me. I'm not a Nazi. I don't know anything about it. But anyway, we never did find him, and found out in 1983 that they found his bones in Berlin <laughs> when they were when they were doing some construction work. So uh, after all that work going up and through the, the Alps, well anyway, I stayed there, and uh, then the Ninth Division broke up. And they sent me to the constabulary, which was a, I don't know whether you're familiar with the constabulary or not, but it was a, uh, it was a unit that was formed from mechanized cavalry units and uh, old, 
all the different units from the 4th Armored Division, primarily. And uh, what it was, it was to replace the German state police. The M RMPs took care of the in town, and the constabulary took care of everything out of town. So we had the borders between the Russian zone and uh, Austria and, of course, the British zone and the French zone. And so that was a police organization. And um, I stayed there until 1948, just right after the Berlin airlift, start, Berlin airlift started. I stayed there and then I left, went back to the States, re-enlisted and uh, went to Japan. Now you went to Japan as an, uh, with the Air Force? No, oh, still, still in the Army, okay. yeah. And uh, I got to Japan sometime in late 48 and uh, I was supposed to go to the 1st Cavalry Division and uh, they pulled my name out, uh, called me out, I should say, and they said, we'd like to send you to Tokyo if you don't mind. I said, gee, you're giving me an, an opportunity to mind? <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> and they said, yeah, well, uh, if, you want to, if you want the job, well, we'll give it to you. And I said, well, where is it? What is it? They said, well, you'll be going to MacArthur's headquarters and you'll be running the communication center for, for MacArthur's headquarters. I said, oh, okay, sounds good. I won't be dirty anymore. I won't be hungry anymore. Well, I'll, I'll take it. So I went to MacArthur's headquarters and uh, not long after I got there, they said, well, uh, General MacArthur might, might want to go forward sometime and uh, if, any, if we get into a combat situation, why, uh, we want you to take your team. I had a, an alert team in communications so that we could set up a communication center and uh, mobile enough so that we could move all our equipment. So they wanted us to go up and learn to ride in gliders and load gliders and all of this kind of stuff. So I got involved in that and finished the course, got my glider wings, and uh, then after it was all over, they said, we just found out that the gliders have been declared obsolete and the Army's not going to use them anymore. And, you know, oh, gee, broke my heart, you know, not to have to worry about landing on one of those silly things. So anyway, I stayed with the alert crew and... Um, well, then the Korean War started, and there I was at his headquarters, and we, whenever he wanted to go to Korea, which was very seldom, well, I would go over with him, set up communications, and, and uh, then he would generally spend just a day or two there, and then if we head back to Japan, we'd have to fold up all this junk again and put it on board a C-54 or something and carry it back to, to Japan. Well, I left Japan I can't remember when it was. It was right about the time he left, when he was uh, relieved. I left about the same time. And I stopped over in Okinawa and, uh, 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 Okinawa, and then I was in the Philippines for a short while. Then I came back to the States, and uh, they put me in what they called the Army Security Agency. And uh, that was a, a radio intercept unit at that time. And it was... It was the worst outfit I was ever in in the Army. I, I absolutely could not, could not stand it. Well, my enlistment was coming up, so I thought, well, there's my opportunity. I'll get out of the Army. If I can't get out of this outfit, I'll get out of the Army. So I tried everything I could to get out of the unit, volunteered for different things. They just wouldn't release me. They said I was too important. 
well, I was so important that when my enlistment came up, I was able to leave, so, you know, they were going to lose me one way or the other. So I left and uh, got back to the States, got out of the Army, went down the, down the street to the Air Force recruiting office, and I said, here I am, can you use me? And they said, well, what was your job in the, in the Army? And I told them, we want you. I said, gee whiz, you know, that was a shock. And uh, I said, well, great. I said, how about rank? Now, I was, at that time, I was a tech sergeant. And they said, we'll give, you, we'll give you a tech sergeant, but you'll lose two years' time in grade. So that means I was delayed two years to, to make master. Well, I finally made master. And uh, I was at, I was, my first assignment was a steward field I was telling you about uh, at uh, Newburgh, New York. I was in communications again, and it was the uh, headquarters for the Eastern Air Defense Force. And uh, I was there for, oh, a year and a half, two years, a year and a half. It's all I ever got in the States was 18 months. They sent me to Alaska remote. And the reason they sent me there, I think, was because they had sent the Air Force Security Service, which was the same as the Army Security Agency, which I got out of, Air Force Security Service sent a letter to me wanting me to volunteer for Air Force Security Service. And I said, no way am I going to volunteer for that because I just got out of that kind of a thing and I don't want to do it anymore. So I went to the legal office and asked them if I had to fill that form out. They said, well, you have to fill the form out, but you, you don't have to sign it, but you have to tell them why you don't want to sign it. So I did. And I said, in view of my Oh, they wanted to know if I planned on staying in the Air Force as a career. So I wrote back, in view of my pending assignment to the Air Force Security Service, my future in the Air Force is doubtful. Well, I sent it in and they came back, well, I don't mean to meet their requirements, which tickled the devil out of me. So consequently, I got assigned to Alaska Remote. And uh, I was supposed, to, if I had gone to Air Force Security Service, I would have ended up in uh, Libya, there you go. And I didn't want to go to Libya either <laughs> at that time. But anyway, they sent me to Alaska Remote, and I was on an island one mile by four. And, uh, Middleton Island was the name of it. And uh, there were anywhere between 60 and 120 guys on the island, and nothing else. Nothing else. No bears out there? They had no bears, but we did have one that was washed ashore one day. It was dead. But uh, no, there was no, no habitation on that island at all except us. Yeah, well, yeah, they didn't know anything about the dew line and uh, I had to explain to them that it was uh, uh, radar to prevent the Russians from sending missiles or airplanes over the North Pole to bomb the United States. It was an early warning. And they, they had never heard of it. And I, I suppose because it's no longer in effect, nobody ever teaches teaches them about that, or has taught them about that. And so uh, I was down at the World War II monument one day and there was this fellow about six foot four, six foot five, something like that. He's got these kids with him, high, uh, high school kids, seniors. I think there was 10 of them he had with him. And uh, he stopped me and he, he uh, asked me if I would talk to the kids. I said, sure, what do you want me to talk about? They just want to know about what I did in the war and this type of thing. And uh, after that, uh, he kind of disappeared and these kids saw me over by the, the information uh, building there and they came over and they gathered around me and 
they wouldn't ask me all kinds of questions and their eyes were bugged out and they were just uh, interested in everything I had to say. And I thought, gee whiz, I, I can't believe this. Uh, you know, you, you read the news, you watch, you watch the television, you hear the radio, you read the newspapers, and all you hear is these rotten kids in this country that are doing all these terrible, rotten things, and you think the whole generation is a washout. And then you run in these 10 kids that are standing there with just enraptured by what you're saying. And it's quite a feeling. And so he, he asked me, they went back and told him about this, I guess it was in their classroom, and he, asked, he called me up and asked me if I would come over and talk to him, which I did, and boy, you, you'd have thought I was General Eisenhower, I mean, they treated me like I was really something special. And I told them, I said, I, I, I want to tell you, I'm very much impressed with all of you. All of you. And I said, I, you're not kids, you're, you're, you're young adults. And I said, thank God for you because uh, the attitude I had toward to your generation was pretty bad. And so it, that, and I had, I had given a talk at another Christian school one day too, and uh, they were the same way. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun talking to kids like that. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more.